Please allow me to add my warm wil welcome here this morning. Can't talk. Warm welcome to you, whether you've gathered here in person or you're worshiping with us at home. It is such a joy. As Michael just uh, prayed, my name is Milt Johnson, and I have the great privilege of serving here at Chantilly Bible Church as uh, uh, the senior pastor. Today, we want to introduce a, a new sermon series. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth, which you can see on the slide above me. And we've entitled this series, A Harvest of Hope. And I want to introduce that series with, a, uh, with an ancient Chinese parable, one of my favorites. I first heard this uh, parable years ago. I don't know if many of you know it, but I served as the pastor for the Chinese for four years, and it was such a joy. But uh, I loved getting together with our Chinese seniors and hearing these parables and stories. And one day I had the opportunity to hear this parable known as the uh, parable of the Chinese farmer or the lost horse. If you're familiar with this parable, I will say that uh, you may find some of the things I say a little differing, but uh, the essence is still, I think, the same. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, a very, very long time ago, there was a Chinese farmer who lived in a tiny village. And although very poor, this farmer was envied by everyone in the village because he owned a beautiful majestic horse. Even the king envied him and coveted this treasure. And people would offer him regularly huge sums of money for him to sell this horse, but he always refused it. And then one morning, the farmer went out to the stable and looked in the stall, and the horse was missing. And so all the villagers in that, uh, in that community gathered there to him, and they started shouting at him, you are a fool. You could have gotten uh, whatever price you wanted for that horse, no amount would have been too high, but now the horse is gone, it's stolen, and, and you have nothing. Well, the farmer, being a very wise old farmer, he said, you know, don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. Whether it is a misfortune or whether it is a blessing, who can say? Who can see what comes next? The people all laughed at him and thought he was indeed a fool and crazy. And about 15 days or so later, that horse returned, and he had run away into the forest, and when he came back, he not only returned, he also brought a dozen wild horses with him. And within hours, the village people were gathered around him once again, and they were saying, hey, you were right, you were right, we were wrong. We, we thought this was a, a misfortune, but actually it turns out that it's a great blessing to you. And the old farmer, the old farmer responded once again, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back and that he brought a dozen horses back with him. No one knows for sure whether this is a blessing or not. For now, let's just take it as it is. Well, the farmer had only one son. And over the next several weeks, they were working to break those wild horses. And after just a few days of doing so, the young son fell off of the horse, broke both his legs. And once again, the old villagers, being as friendly as they could be, gathered around the old man, and they began to cast their judgments. You were right, they said. That dozen horses wasn't a blessing. Your only son has broken his legs, and now in your old age, you have nothing. You are even poorer than you were before. Once again, the old farmer spoke. You people are obsessed with judging, he said. Who knows if it's a blessing or a misfortune that you claim? No one, he said, knows. 
A few weeks later, a few weeks later, a war broke out between an, uh, the, the country that they lived in in China there amongst a, a powerful neighboring country. All the men in the village were called up and required to join the army in a, in a battle that was sure that many would not return. And only the son of this man, this older uh, farmer, was excluded because of his injury. And so guess what? Guess what happened? Once again, the villagers gathered around the farmer saying, you were right. We thought was a, what you thought was a misfortune was actually a great blessing. Yes, your son's legs are broken, but at least you have a son. Ours may be gone forever. And the farmer spoke one final time. He said, you know, it's impossible to talk with you guys. You always draw hasty conclusions that no one knows for certain, unless we know the whole story, he said. How can we judge rightly? I love this parable. It's so rich with meaning for a couple of reasons here for application as we begin this study of the book of Ruth. First, first because it clearly shows us that often, and I think you believe this is true, we don't we interpret, process, and respond to the very same data and the very same circumstances very, very differently. And second, because it reminds us that even as we've been singing, I love the theme today that we've sung over and over again in the songs. Even though we can't see it, even though we can't feel it, God is always present. He's always working through the circumstances. He's weaving and he's accomplishing his divine purposes. Think about it for a moment with me, if you will. How many times, like me, have you uh, had hardships and challenges in your life that actually turned out in the end to be blessings in disguise? Or how about how many of you today have, uh, have had something in your life turn out totally different than what you expected and wanted, only to find out that God had something so much better than you could even begin to imagine? And it's with these opening thoughts, that's a great foundation, I think, for Ruth here, the study of Ruth. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to look here how God works in the midst of the darkest of times, okay? And you'll find the book of Ruth, if you're not familiar, in the Old Testament. It's a small book, just four chapters between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And it's among the historical books. So please turn there with me, if you will. And I want to read the first five verses. Please follow along with the narrator writes. Here's what he said. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, the name uh, these two took Moabite wives, the names of which was Ophrah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Wow, right? Wow. When I finished writing, uh, reading this introduction, I wrote down these words to kind of sum up what I think is captured here. Dire, <laughs> dismal 
depressing and, and even death. But, but, and, and please notice that these, these words here are accounts of an actual historical event that takes place, notice, in the days of the judges. And Scripture summarizes that period of time very powerfully in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, when it says, in, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone, hear me, did what was right in his own eyes. And please understand, that's not meant to be an optimistic statement. The implication is that the people did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted to do it, regardless of whether it was right are wrong. And as a result, this pattern occurs over and over again in the book of Judges, in which it goes like something like this. First, God's people rebel against God. They do all sorts of evil in the sight of the Lord, and they serve and they worship and give themselves to pagan gods. And as a result, second, their faith unfaithfulness provokes God to anger. And in a holy retribution, God gives them over to their enemies a terribly and distressing time to drive them back to himself. Third, sooner or later, the people do, in fact, <laughs> repent, and they cry out in desperation to God to rescue them from these oppressors. And fourth, they're moved to pity by their groanings. God is moved to pity by their groanings. And we're told in Scripture that he appoints temporary leaders, temporary judges to come in and to rescue his people. And as a result, what happens is the people enjoy rest fifth but not for very long because sixth the moment whenever that judge died the people turned their backs on god again and were even more corrupt than their fathers and we see this cycle over and over and over again in the book of judges that my friends is when ruth the account of ruth takes place in addition to this underlining problem of Israel's rebellion and their idolatry, there's this terrible famine that was devastating Judah, including Bethlehem, whose name ironically means house of bread. And because of this famine, we see in Scripture, and there's a big debate as to whether he should have done this or he shouldn't have, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, along with their two sons, Milan and Chilion, they make their way to the land of Judah, the or from Judah to Moab, to sojourn there for a while, probably to escape this famine. The country of Moab, as you can see on the map here, was about 50 miles or 80 kilometers from Bethlehem on the east side of the Dead Sea. And while in Moab, we're told that somehow, when or how, we don't know, Elimelech dies. And we're told in verse 4 that Ruth's sons married Moabite women, namely Ruth and Orpah. And 10 years later, to add to the misery, having no children or heirs, Milan and Chilion also die, leaving three widows helpless and alone in a foreign pagan land. And I say helpless or hopeless here because a woman's worth and security at this time depended almost exclusively or entirely on her family, work, uh, wage work was essentially non-existent for women at this time. And folks, that is the foundation, okay? It's in the depth and despair and the hopelessness that sets the stage for a glimmer of hope that appears in verse 6. Did you see it? Look what it says. That's when you see Naomi heard that the Lord, first time the Lord's name is mentioned in this book, even brought up in this book, has come to the aid of his people. He is sending them rain. He is sending them crop, and they're ending the famine in Bethlehem. So in verse 7, 
we find that Naomi, along with Ruth and Orpah, are returning to the land of Judah. And at least initially, we find that both Ruth and Orpah wanted to remain with Naomi. But then we come to verses 8 and 9, and there's just another amazing twist in this narrative, when we find that Naomi suddenly attempts to turn Ruth and Orpah back to Moab. Let's read it, verse 8. Go, return each of you to his mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of his husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. We have no idea what's going on in Naomi's mind here. Many suspect that she, um, she's thinking as she's getting closer to Bethlehem, back to Judah, of the plight that was going to be for these young daughters-in-laws that he, she had begun to love. What would it be like for a Moabite woman to live, a widow especially, in Israel? And as a widow herself, she's thinking, what am I going to do to protect or help them? If, however, Ruth and Orpah go back to their, their families, to their parents, and they arrange for marriage with Moabite men, then they can have families, and they'll have the security that she thinks they need. And so with the blessing, do you see it? May the Lord deal kindly with you. Naomi releases her daughter-in-laws from all obligation to her. However, Orpah and Ruth aren't in agreement with her. They can't bear the thought of leaving their mother-in-law alone. And according to verse 10, look, they say, no, we will not return. We, we, we will go to be with your people. So Naomi, she's not finished yet. Naomi's a little stubborn here. She reinforces her argument. Look at verses 11 through 13. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to, to have a husband. If I should stay, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Look at verse 3. Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly... Don't miss verse, this next verse here. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. And so here we have this sarcastic kind of cynical way of speaking. And, and we find Naomi is, is reinforcing her hopelessness and helplessness and once again urging her daughter-in-laws to go back to Moab where she is sure, Moab, where she is sure that they will find the security that they need. Okay? Please also notice here that in her argument here with her, her daughter-in-laws, Naomi is interpreting her hard circumstances as coming from God's enmity towards her. And we'll see later as we get into the book the same misinterpretations when Naomi and Ruth enter Bethlehem. They will tell the women who greet them there, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, right? For the Almighty, listen to this, has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Folks, that's where Naomi is at this point. But thankfully, but thankfully, God, God is always at work. Thankfully, God is always at work. And, and, and even when we're blinded by our fear, even when we're blinded by our disappointment and unmet expectations, God is at work. 
It's true that when she left Bethlehem, the famine had emptied her stomach. But as we continue in this narrative, we'll see that Naomi may have left empty, but she came back fuller than she could ever be. Warning here. Story spoiler alert, okay? I'm warning you. Have you ever read a novel and went to the end of the book to see how it was going to end? That's kind of what I'm doing for you here. What Naomi is too hurt to realize at this point is that God's work in her story isn't finished, okay? Her daughter-in-law, her role in this story is just beginning. Within a year, Naomi will have a son through Ruth, and those same women that are trying to comfort her as they go into Bethlehem will say of Ruth, that she is more valuable than seven sons. And I got to this point, I started thinking, I think it's really easy for us in this day and age to look at Naomi and judge her wrongly. But I wonder, folks, brothers and sisters in Christ, if we were suddenly thrust into the same situations and circumstances of Naomi, how would we feel? What would we do? Isn't it true that all too often when we, when we go through a hardship, when tragedy strikes, we feel abandoned by God? And here's the thing. In this narrative, we'll soon see that even when we can't see it, I, we've heard this over and over again, right? I, I can almost hear it in my, my heart singing here. In this narrative, even though we can't see it, even though we can't feel it, listen, guys, because God is at work, and, and nothing is outside of the realm of his sovereignty or outside of his omnipotence or his providential hand. We can trust that even in our affliction, he is carrying out his purposes and he, we can experience hope. We can experience the harvest of hope that we'll see in this book. Verse 10, and later in verse 16, I think something very interesting about Naomi here. Even in her current emptiness and embitterment, I got to say here, something struck me when I got to this text. The fact is that these ladies are willing to give up absolutely everything to return with Naomi to her people in Judah. And I think that speaks very highly of Naomi's overall testimony here. And I want you to hold that thought because we'll come back to that in just a minute. Okay? For now, look at verse 14 again. And, and here we see another crucial turning point in our story. You see, Orpah makes the decision to go back to Moab. Look at verse 14. Then they, speaking of Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, Aidea, farewell. But Ruth clung to her. A couple of observations here about the relationship that Orpah had with Naomi and Ruth. I want you to notice, first of all, that this wasn't a stow away in the middle of the night kind of situation when nobody was watching. And second, clearly, Ruth and Naomi um, felt heartbroken by their separation from Orpah. Scripture tells us they wept together. This is far more than just a wah, wah. This is a heart-wrenching kind of weeping that takes place here. Please also let me point out third here that Orpah going back to Moab is exactly, is exactly what Naomi has been repeatedly telling her to do so. It's so easy, at least for me, I don't know about you, to label as I read this story, well, Ruth, she's the good character, and, and Naomi, uh, and Orpah is the bad character in the story. 
However, as Naomi has repeatedly pointed out, going back to her mother's house would provide for Orpha the possibility of another marriage and children. And apparently, apparently Orpha longed for that security, longed for that comfort and that familiarity that it would bring her. And I would ask, can anyone falter for that? That being said, while we would like, at least for me anyway, I'll speak for myself, while we would like to be picturing ourselves here as the Ruth in this story, right? I think that like Orpha, we often, we often, brothers and sisters in Christ, choose the familiar and the comfortable option versus stepping out on faith. Personally, I like that safe, that pragmatic, that easy, predictable, living by sight versus the choice of not knowing what the outcome will be. How about you? What actually happened to Orpha, really, we don't know when she went back to Moab. But one thing for certain that jumps out in this text is that from a literary standpoint, Orpah's return to Moab in my opinion, stands in stark contrast to Ruth, who refused to be put off by her mother-in-law's words or argument. Verse 14, notice Ruth's decision to cling to Naomi. And that word cling or clung is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2, verses, verse 24, to describe or to express that attitude or that commitment that a husband should have towards his wife as he leaves his parents. That serves as a beautiful foundation or preview for Ruth's vow in verses 16 and 17. Let's see what she said. By the way, first time Ruth has spoken all the way here in verse 16 in the entire book at this point. Notice what she vows. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts us, parts me from you. Folks, this, this is total, total commitment. Ruth is giving up everything and anything that gave her identity in order to be with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Only, she says, that the only thing that will separate us will be death. Now, why would Ruth do that? Could it be, as I noted earlier, that at least part of the reason was because of something Ruth saw in Naomi? Surely, Surely there was something there, too, that made Ruth want to identify with the God of Naomi. Your God will be my God, says Ruth. That's not just a casual comment. It was a commitment to Yahweh. It was a rejection, a firm rejection of the Moabite idols and gods that she had grown up with and was familiar with. Ruth obviously loved Naomi. But I would submit to you today that she clearly seems to be in love with the God of Israel too. And to seal the quality of that vow, that decision, Ruth invokes judgment from Israel's God if she were to break her commitment of loyalty to her mother-in-law with anything but death. Let me make three applications for you to think about this week. 
as we look at her vow here. First, <clears throat> do our lives. This is something I wrote down in my notes. Think about it. Do our lives reflect God to others in such a way that we, they, they would want to make our Lord the Lord of their own lives? Are we living, brothers and sisters in Christ, in such a way that others see the Lord Jesus Christ in us and glorify him because of our life, our decisions, our priorities? The second thing I would point out here is I believe Ruth exhibits a true, selfless, unconditional type of love, a kindness and devotion and a loyalty that Naomi in her time of need that we ought to be willing to show to others in their need. I wonder, <clears throat> for whom are you, like Ruth, a faithful friend and supporter today to a brother or sister in Christ? And third, and perhaps the most important, Ruth's words, I think, represent a beautiful picture of a total surrender of one who has placed their faith and their hope entirely in Jesus Christ. Look again at the content of Ruth's vow to Naomi. Wherever you go, she says, I will go. Applying that thought, brothers and sisters in Christ, to our relationship with Jesus, she's saying, no more will I take my direction and cues from the world. That's what a believer is saying here. Christ is now my light, he is my life, and I will trust and follow him regardless of the cost. Wherever you lodge, she says, I will lodge. For the believer, we want to say to the Lord, I, I want my daily life to be filled with a sense of your presence. Why? Because when we live with a sense of God's presence in that way, it changes everything about us. Your people shall be my people. Lord, I, I want to worship you. I want to enter into the fullness of fellowship with others who call on your name with a pure heart. You know, before we met Jesus, we did not submit to him. We were our own masters doing our own thing, robbing God not only of everything he's given us, but also our souls. And this miracle happens. <clears throat> we're born again, and everything turns around. Now, Lord willing, as we ingest God's word, as we spend time with God's people, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we begin to no longer desire to withhold anything from God anymore. And that's all done in the power that he supplies so that he gets all the glory. Perhaps the goal of a Christian life can best be summed up in the words of Paul in Galatians 2.20 as I put them up on the screen, can we please read them out loud together? <clears throat> I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do we have that kind of a total commitment to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? The next big event in our narrative is Naomi and Ruth's arrival in Bethlehem at the barley harvest. And as I noted earlier, Naomi's return home only intensified the depth of her grief. She saw nothing in the future. All she could see was the immediate loneliness and abandonment and helplessness of being a widow. 
However, the narrator leaves us with one huge glimmer of hope. Did you see it? Verse 22, when he writes, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let me remind you that the story of Ruth begins in a pretty dreary picture. Famine, hunger, depth, wandering, and hopelessness. And we see in the beginning parts of this book, this narrative of the chaos, God working through the chaos and the grief and the loneliness and all the difficult circumstances. And God is beginning, my friends, to set the stage for eternal plan, his eternal plan to unfold. Because of Ruth's commitment and love for Naomi and her refusal to turn back from what she knew was the path God wanted her to walk, God would bless her tremendously. She would become the great-grandmother of the King David and a direct ancestor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll see this book unfold, we'll see that the ultimate blessing, the harvest of hope that we are emphasizing in this book, not only for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, it's for all of us, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. God is good, isn't he? God is good, isn't he? And as we prepare now to celebrate the Lord's table together, as Mike mentioned earlier, I have no idea what circumstances you're going through in your life. Um, but if you're here and you're hurting because of a hardship, I hope you hear in this message encouragement and hope. God, you see, has not abandoned you. In fact, the opposite is true. As with Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, he wants to bless our lives, giving us direction and endurance, character, stability, and a bold confidence in his ability to guide and direct us. And folks, thus, whether we are in the middle of a famine of despair today or we're just getting through it, may I encourage you from this story that we can trust God we can trust his plans even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it. And he's always wiser than we can ever think. And he always responds in ways better than we can expect. In times like those when I'm going through things unencouraged for me is Dr. Charles Spurgeon's quote, a man who went through depression regularly in his life and ministry. And here's what he said. God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. I love this next part. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Amen? Amen. And communion is a great reminder of that quote in real life. When we are going through the battles big and small, we need to remember that we have victory in Jesus Christ because of the cross. The cross brings us love, doesn't it? It proves God's love for us. It surrounds us daily by his love as a result of the work Christ has done. The cross brings liberty in that because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we are free from the bondage and the penalty of sin. The cross brings life. It is in the cross that we have eternal life in Christ Jesus, and we enjoy everything that God has planned for us. And, and the cross brings victory. It brings victory over life's circumstances. It is the greatest victory ever won on earth and shows us the depth of God's love for us. Jesus loves you so much that he paid the ransom for your sin. So whatever you're facing, 
know he's there for you. Whatever you're facing, you need not fear. He has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Only one, as we sang a moment ago, who can turn ashes to beauty. And finally, I would say, if there's one thing that caught my attention about Naomi and Ruth, if I were to say a key characteristic of Ruth, it would be loyalty. But one of the things I see about Naomi is she never gave up total hope, and she was very transparent and honest with God. Honest with God, honest with uh, the women that were part of her hometown. And so let me encourage you as we prepare now to celebrate the Lord's table together. Whatever's on your heart, whatever's on your heart, be honest with God. Talk about it. Pray about it with him. And I would encourage you, as Naomi did too, to talk with people that you trust. Give people the opportunity to be able to surround you with their love, their prayers, and support, literally to be a roof to you as, as Naomi had. We're now going to celebrate the Lord's table together, and I want to invite those who are going to be serving at the various stations here to come forward now, and the praise team as well. We invite everyone and anyone who has placed their trust in Jesus to participate in this celebration. Please take some time, as we are going to give in just a few minutes, to let God search your heart. And if there's anything that is keeping you from enjoying the fellowship that God wants to have with you, please let him reveal that and confess that. And as you feel ready, please get up and go to one of the stations around the rooms here, pick up your elements, come back to your chair, and please take some time to open it because it takes a little bit of skill and time to do that, and then we'll partake of it together. Let me go ahead and pray. Just continue as I close in prayer to let God search your heart. Father, thank you so very much for this uh, wonderful, wonderful book that we've entered into today. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that indeed you are a good God and that you are that refuge, even if we can't see it in times of trouble. Help us, Lord, to trust in you with all our hearts, not lean on our own understanding, but acknowledge you every day so that you might be the one who directs our steps. Bless this time of celebration now. May you be honored and glorified because of our time together as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.